All right, good morning, everybody. This, this morning we're going to be in Hebrews 5 and 6, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Hebrews 5 and 6. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Let's lift up Holly. Lord, we lift up Holly to you as she's uh, going in for an operation here Tuesday. We pray that it goes well. Um, it's successful, obviously, and uh, full recovery, God. I pray that you give her peace and, uh, and the doctor's wisdom and skill with their hands. And we thank you for the, uh, the doctors that you've given us and the wisdom that you've placed uh, in them and, and given them the gifts and abilities to do what they do. Um, and we, uh, we just thank you. We give you all the glory and, and honor for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. <clears throat> Cut down a couple trees at our house yesterday and the day before. So I don't know if anybody, it's, they're walnut trees. Do they burn? Okay. Well, if you want any of it, it's right back there. Now, what the plan was back there is that's going to be like the bonfire for the harvest party. And by then, it'll be dried out and good to go. And we'll burn it up really quick and then let it settle down. That'd be kind of our warmth. But there's an awful lot there. So if anybody needs any, there's some nice big chunks like this big around it. You can take if you want to take those sometimes. So um, anyway, those are out there for you. Hebrews 5 and 6, the writer here continues on with his thought about the high priest, our high priest, Jesus, but then uh, breaks away from his thought for a little bit to describe, and, and uh, I don't know if it would be considered a rebuke, but just an exhortation to go on to maturity. Um, there was a, a stagnation that had taken place with the Hebrews, and, and he's writing to take care of that problem. He could see that in them, and that is really one of the reasons he wrote this, not to just explain the faith to the Hebrews. They knew. They had come to know Christ. They had received him as their Lord and Savior, the ones that are reading this anyway. But they had begun to go back to legalism. They went back to uh, Judaism and not embracing Christianity completely. They tried to blend the two, and it wasn't working well, and it actually inhibited their growth. And so that's what these next two chapters really have to, um, have to do with. That's the subject. It says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. He's going back to um, Jesus being the high priest, who is a great high priest, better, the best high priest, but then saying no one appoints themselves to this position. That has to be given to you. God has to appoint you to those positions. None of us gets to choose our ministry. God appoints us to ministry, and this is one of those things. And, and likewise, even with Jesus, the Son, he got appointed to this ministry. He got chosen for this ministry. It wasn't something he put upon himself, because that would be maybe one of the arguments that, that the people that are trying to lure these Christian Jews back to the temple, that might be one of the things they brought up. One of the arguments, they said, well, you know, he just he exalted himself. Talks about himself all the time. He, who made him? And one of the things that they could use as ammo would be the fact that he's of the tribe of Judah. He's not of the tribe of Levi. He can't be a priest. He's of the tribe of Judah. Nobody from the tribe of Judah can be a priest. And so that's, 
what the writer's trying to get a hold of here and, 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 and anyway, dispel that myth or get away from that argument and give him some ammunition back the other way. He didn't appoint himself, the writer says. God appointed him. And by the way, I think verse 2 is that all these priests should be having compassion on everybody, knowing that they're just men. That was the whole point of taking men to be priests over men, was so that they could identify with them and say, certainly I can understand why you're coming to me because I had to offer up sacrifices for myself right before you came to me. Nobody's above that. Nobody gets beyond that. Nobody goes beyond needing Jesus for their salvation. Nobody went beyond needing a sacrifice of a lamb for their sins. Nobody did. Not even the high priest, the manly high priest, the the human high priest. Jesus, God come in the flesh, took that high priesthood and was appointed by the Father to do this, to be this high priest. And the only offering that he could offer for the sins of the world was himself. He's the sacrifice also. And so the writer simply takes him through that. He is the high priest. Now, he understands that the argument is that he's of Judah, the tribe of Judah. And you can read the genealogy of Mary in Luke chapter 2 to see that as you go through her genealogy. I know it talks about Joseph, but it talks about Joseph being the son-in-law of Heli. And then it goes on through Mary's genealogy because, um, well, that's what it was written. His is in another gospel, I believe, Matthew. Joseph's is in another gospel, Matthew. So anyway, there's Mary's. And, and we see that Mary was of Judah, and so Christ is of Judah, Jesus is of Judah. So what do you, how do you reconcile that? You know, what do you do about that? I mean, it's not a major deal. I, I assume God can choose a priest from whomever. But, okay, fine. Only the Levites can be priests. God said so. All right, so what do we do about that? So verse 5, So also Christ did not glorify himself, to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, the father said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Not of the order of Aaron, not of the order of Levites, but of the order of Melchizedek. Well, this is a new thing, and we're actually going to get into that next week. Sorry, it's in chapter 7. But they're going to mention this Melchizedek guy, and you can look it up this week and go over, who's this Melchizedek guy? What do you mean of the order of Melchizedek? Never heard of that guy before. Well, look it up, Google it, find the scripture, and you can read what he's talking about here. But he is going beyond Levites. He's going beyond Aaron, even. He's going way, 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 way back to the order of Melchizedek because there was a high priest named Melchizedek. He's kind of a mysterious figure back in the Old Testament. And so he says, this is who he is. Um, This is who Jesus is of, this order of Melchizedek, who, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, he's talking about Jesus now, not Melchizedek. I don't know if you saw that switch. In the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And here's where he switches gears. You've become dull of hearing, he says. 
this legalism that's overtaken you again, that you were set free from, has made you dull of hearing. You've become single focus. Your, your growth is stunted. I'd love to talk to you about this more about Christ and the depth and go into great details about some of the mysteries of Christ, but it's difficult for me to share that with you because you become dull of hearing. I'm dull of hearing right now. I've got this cold I've been fighting off, and I think I'm done with it now, but I just, I can't, everybody's muffled right now when I listen to them. So I kind of understand that. God probably did that to me to give me an idea of what it feels like. I can kind of get what you're saying, but I say, huh, a lot? What? I'm blaming the cold. It's not my age. I might need a hearing aid. I don't know yet. But I understand this dull of hearing. I can still hear, but it's not clear. They become dull of hearing. It used to be crystal clear. It used to be they could hear a pin drop. But now when Paul speaks, now when Paul tries to teach him something, or the writer here tries to teach him something, or anybody tries to teach him something, they become dull of hearing, and, and that's what legalism does. It makes you dull of hearing. See, because if you don't have a relationship with a person, you're not listening for that person anymore. You've got a, a, a legal obligation that you're just going through the motions. It, you, that's a past tense thing. That's a person over there. I met with my lawyer. We left his office and we're done. We've signed the papers. Now I leave. I don't hear him anymore. I don't hear the other party anymore. I just go by the letter of the law. And so there's no more communication. There's no more back and forth. Quiet times are non-existent. God's Word becoming alive and sharper than any two-edged sword in your life. Speaking from the pages is gone because you become legal. There's no relationship back and forth. There's no understanding the heart of the author. It only has to do with the letter of the law. What was the intent? What's his mind on this? And if I don't know, do I have someone I can ask? And of course you do. He's alive and wants to have that relationship with us, but they become dull of hearing because they, they didn't think they needed to. I've got what it told me to do. I'm doing what it told me to do. There's no more. Can you imagine a marriage like that? Maybe you're in one. We're all, we used to sit up until 3 a.m. talking. Weren't the, I mean, we suffered the next day going to work, but oh, we'd fall asleep on the phone with each other, you know? You still there? Oh, she's asleep, you know? Or he's asleep. That kind of communication. And then when they'd say something, you, you'd listen intently, and you'd try to read between the lines and the letters that they'd write to you. But now... You barely look at each other. You pass each other in the kitchen and hardly notice. You're like roommates at this point. And if they weren't there, it'd almost be easier sometimes. And God doesn't want that. He doesn't want that with us. Yeah, yeah, we're married. We got the paper. We signed it. Pastor said the right words. Judge said the right words. Whatever. No, I want that relationship, that back and forth, that friendship. I want to be your husband. I want you to be my bride. But legalism gets in the way. I'm only here because I'm legally obligated to be here. If I want the benefits of your death, I have to stay with you. It's an ugly situation, and God isn't pleased with it. It's not what he wanted from us. Nor did he want it from them. I didn't save you and send my son to die for you so that we can have this nonchalant relationship. Eh, Maybe I'll hear from him today, maybe I won't. It really doesn't make much difference. I already know what he said. 
Now there needs to be that relationship. And so the writer here calls him out on it. You become dull of hearing. I'd love to talk to you about this order of Melchizedek. I'd love to talk to you about how he had to learn obedience. It's kind of a new thing. How, do you, how does Jesus learn anything? Isn't he God come in the flesh? Well, he did. How, how, how can a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have perfect communion in heaven, always about each other's business, always having one will, and then come down here and say, now you've got to be separated from me. That was Jesus' struggle in the garden. Separated from you. Go to the cross and have your wrath poured out upon me. That's never happened before. That's nothing I've ever experienced before. That's something new. And that's why he prayed. I, I, I don't want this cross. Let this cup pass me if it's possible. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. That's the first time we've ever seen two wills in the Trinity. Otherwise, they were perfect sync. They were constantly right along with each other. They knew exactly what they were going to do. But this is the only time where I'd rather not. But it doesn't matter what I want. It's only what you want, Father. And so nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he obeyed. It's kind of a funny moment in most, most of the premarital counseling that I do when we talk about obedience and leadership and all that in the family and in the home. And, I, and, I, and they're excited about it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. One heart, one mind all the way through. Well, yeah. It, it is like that. And, and it's super easy, provided you agree. <laughs> this isn't talking about when you agree. There's no obedience necessary when you agree. There's only obedience necessary when you disagree. Not my will, but your will be done. I'm going to follow. This is the direction I was going to go, but that's okay. I'm going to follow you. That's a different subject altogether. And you can see their eyes like, oh yeah, and then you you talk about it's when you disagree there. Oh, that's when it gets real. That's when they've got to figure out, wait a minute, I guess I need to, I better be prayed up for that moment. And you do. You've got to be prayed up for that moment. You've got to be ready for that. Well, Jesus was. He prayed up. He says, Father. And he, I mean, it was so agonizing for him that he sweat blood in the garden. It was that difficult. Not, not difficult to obey his dad. Not difficult to submit to the Father. Difficult for what the Father was asking him to do. That's the difficult thing. But he did it. He learned obedience. That's something he could only experience. You can't be prepared for that. You have to really do it. And there's a beautiful blessing attached to that. And here's the thing. If if Jesus can obey, so can we. And outside of marriage, it's the same thing. I have the Father's will for my life. It's my job to seek that out and to find out what that will is for my life. What do you want? Who do you want me to marry? Where do you want me to go to school? Do you want me to go to school? It's not a matter of, well, that's just the next step. It's what we do. No, it's prayerful. Sweat blood if you need to over the matter. I want to do your will, God. And if God says something to you in that prayer time as you're desiring to seek his will, and he actually shows it to you, you best be prepared to obey it, even if it's contrary to what you thought he was going to say. So important. Submission to God. Obedience to God is not when we agree. 
It's when we disagree. It's when my will doesn't line up with his, you see. Jesus learned it. We need to learn it. And he tells them that. He explains that to them. But he says, you become dull of hearing. Now he switches to spiritual immaturity. Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. It's something we can build on, something we're supposed to grow into. It's fun to watch babies nursing or you know, or having a bottle or whatever they're doing, but it's neat to see them gulp and swallow and slurp and drool and all that, and it's great. It's not so great when it's your 23-year-old son after a car accident. That's not so great. It looks odd. It looks different. It looks unusual. You try not to stare. You try not to point. You try not to be sad. It's not right, though. It's not how it's supposed to be. They should be cutting steak and chewing on it. That's kind of what happened to these Hebrews. They'd come to know Christ. They were growing in the Lord, but then they went and they had this terrible accident. They fell back into it. They went back to this legalism. And it's frustrating for the writer to the point where he wrote this letter saying, come on, you were growing. You were growing. But you become inhibited. You become uh, that, that stunted growth through legalism. Be careful. It's not a legal relationship. He wants him to move from milk to solid food. And we do that. Of course, it's just a picture. He's not being literal, obviously. But he says you exercise your senses. You work out your salvation. You use it, what you've learned. Don't collect Bible studies. You don't read again. You don't go over the gospel again. Am I really, really saved? He's going to explain that in chapter 6 here when we get into it. Well, you need to leave those elementary principles, he's going to tell us in chapter 6, and move on to maturity, growth. I'm all for evangelism, that's great, but that's not where God wants to leave us. That's like saying, I've conceived, now just set the baby down and let's go make more babies. No. You've got to raise them. You've got to protect them. You've got to help them grow. You've got to help them build their muscles. You've got to teach them how to walk, crawl, walk, run. Got to teach them how to be right and wrong and good and bad and how to avoid situations and what's dangerous and what's not. You've got to, so they can go on to maturity, so that they can be raised up to go and do and tell and share. Evangelism is the only thing. Without evangelism, no, it's not the only thing. It's the first thing, absolutely. And without it, you wouldn't have a class, right? You wouldn't be teaching anybody. There is no family. But you've got to grow. And we've got to teach and we've got to share and we have to mature. And the writer's calling them to the carpet on this. Hey, it's time to grow up a little bit. You should be eating steak by now. I don't know how, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I'll use myself in this example because, I mean, that's the only safe way to do this. But I don't know how long I had my mom and dad cut my meat for me. How's was that kid. There's some fat over here. You know, old enough to say it and point it out. You know, 
And they weren't like, oh, they weren't like that. They were like, oh, eat it. And my dad had grabbed this, you know, back when fat was still attached to the meat that was all crispy and yummy. He'd grab it and say, we'd eat the whole thing and be like, oh, that's disgusting, dad. You know, now though, now that it's gone from our meat, have you ever had a steak that comes like from a butcher, like from someone's cow that grew up here and you didn't get it from hy V? You put that on the grill and all of a sudden there's a fire in the grill. There's a fire. That's because there's fat to burn finally, you know? Oh, it tastes so good. The flavor's there. Now I'm going back to God's word now. Sorry. <laughs> I got a little hungry there. But my goodness, kid, cut your own meat and chew it. Let me chew it for you while you're at it, you know? No, I don't want that. But you need to eat. You need to exercise those teeth. That's why God gave you teeth. Time to move on from milk. That's God's way of saying, time to start chewing, you know? Mix a little cereal in with that. Then when you mix the cereal in with that, you go for some of those soft solids now. I mean, they really got us transitioning slowly, don't they? You go through the Gerber aisle. Then you got those... Melba toast it used to be. Now I think they've got a better flavor. Thank goodness. That was some nasty stuff. But you grow and you work your way into it. And the teething happens. The teeth break through and, oh, man, now I'm eating. You know, and we grow up. And now you couldn't get me to take a spoonful of strained peas now. Not going to happen. That's disgusting. Couldn't do it. You just fake it with the kid. Mm, 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 mm. You know, and you put it in their mouth. You know better. The writer here is struggling with this. It's like, you ought to be teaching this. I shouldn't be teaching you this again. You should be teaching this. You ought to be to that place now. You should have exercised your senses to discern both good and evil, but you haven't. Still don't know what God's will is. Still don't understand what you should think about a certain matter or a certain subject or a political climate. You ought to know. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've read through God's Word, you've been through Bible studies and all, you ought to know what the mind of Christ is on the matter. Verse 1, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of, and here they are, repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, and of the doctrine of baptisms, plural, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Those are elementary principles. They're foundational. They're very important. You must know those, but okay, we got it. Why are we still struggling with these things? Repentance from dead works. The things I used to do to get myself to heaven. The things that the Hebrews were going back to. I'm supposed to repent of those things. Paul says, I counted all his dung. I look back at what I tried to do to get God's attention and to get his favor, and I count it as dung. We're supposed to move on from that stuff, not go back to it, not fall into it, and of faith towards God. Sometimes, you know, because I don't know your heart, and I don't know if you really accepted Christ the first time you said you accepted Christ, or the second time you accepted Christ, or the third time you accepted Christ. Maybe all three of those were big fakes. I don't know. Only you know your heart. But after a while, you've got to stop coming to the altar to get saved. You're saved. That constant coming to the altar, that constant 
doing things over and over again just to make sure, just to make sure, just to make sure. We need to get sure. You need to know that you're saved. God's Word tells you that. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you are saved. If you believe Him, it's okay. Sometimes we have doubts. I just want to make sure. No, no, His Word says so. The constantly coming up, that action of coming forward is becoming a ritual for you. It's becoming something that is a work. It's dangerous. It leads to other repetitious things. Prayers. Same prayer over and over again. I don't know if I said that right. I better say that again. I better say my prayers. And our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The kingdom come, the will be done. And it becomes no longer a conversation, but a ritual. We have to be careful of that. Paul says, a writer here says, we need to move on. That's done. We've laid that foundation. It's good. Now let's build on that. The doctrine of baptism, or the, I'm sorry, faith towards God. The doctrine of baptisms. Do, do we know those? Do you know those? We should. There's lots of them. It was just that water baptism thing, I thought. No, 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 no. There's lots. Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into Christ. It has nothing to do with water. And then Jesus baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. It has nothing to do with water. There is that baptism of water. That's one of them, but that's only one. You get baptized in fire sometimes. You know what that's all about. When you get purified, there's lots of them. But let's lay those aside now that we've got those down. I understand that I need to be baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. I'm saved. Now I know that Jesus says he wants to baptize me with the Holy Spirit, a separate baptism. And I'm going to let him. And I've done that. He's done that. This is great. I get baptized with water. You bet. Go for it. Baptized with fire. Don't have much to do with that, but boy, here it comes. And you go through the fire and you come out better. But we're done with that. We don't argue those points anymore or try to lay those foundations again. The laying on of hands whether that's for sickness, whether that's for sending people out in ministry. There's lots of reasons. Raising people from the dead, I guess that's a sickness thing. I mean, there's, there's those, the laying on of hands. Well, I don't know if that's true. We're laying that foundation still? Of course you lay hands on people to send them out for ministry. Of course you lay hands on people when they're sick. It's not something you debate. It's a basic foundation. Of the resurrection of the dead. You will rise again. The dead will rise again. It doesn't, we don't just evaporate. Resurrection of the dead, it's going to happen. I don't wonder about it. I don't hope it happens. I, I, it's done. It's a foundation that's been laid. And of eternal judgment. That's an important one. Eternal judgment. Not temporary judgment. Not anathema. Not just uh, burning up or annihilation. In fact, the same word here of eternal judgment, it's the same word in verse 9. In the Greek, if you want to go all the way back to wordology, eternal salvation. It's not a big deal, but some people try to challenge that eternal judgment thing. That's something we shouldn't have to lay over and over again. It's a fact. It is eternal judgment, not temporary judgment. Just as your salvation isn't temporary, it's eternal. It's the same exact word. So if you want to say that your judgment is temporary, then you can say that your salvation is temporary also. But you, you can't pick and choose. God makes sure in his word that we don't get into those weird thoughts or weird doctrines. Eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible 
for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. I smile because that is a struggle for a lot of folks right here. I don't think it should be. It doesn't need to be. Paul didn't mean it. The writer didn't mean for it to be a struggle for us to say, now wait a minute, let's not read any further until we understand this. It should have just flowed with the thought. The thought is, you're going back to old dead works that can't save you. This bothers the Calvinist because it turns out that you can lose your salvation. Wait a minute. Well, they weren't really saved. They say they twist. Eh, that's a pretty twist of a scripture there. If you're going to say that someone who's enlightened tasted the heavenly gifts, having become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come, they weren't ever saved? I don't know about that. But whatever keeps you in your doctrine, I guess. Or there are manyist. You can lose your salvation. You can get your salvation back. You can lose your salvation. You can get your salvation back. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think the key is this, the last part, this verse 6. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance, and here's why, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. In other words, you've accepted Christ. He's your Lord and Savior, but now you don't think so anymore, and so you put him back on the cross where he belongs as if you nailed him there. You're crucifying him as a guilty man who's made himself nothing. There's no other way of salvation, in other words. I tried Jesus. I didn't like Jesus. I'm putting him back on the cross. Now I'm looking for something else. There is no other options out there. You've put him to open shame. You've rejected the Messiah. It doesn't mean that you can't accept him. That doesn't mean you can't believe on him. It doesn't mean that when you fall into sin that you can't repent and come back to Christ. Oh, I can't believe I walked away from him for so long. That's the prodigal son's story. He was away from his dad. He was on his own. He had rejected the covering of his father, but he came back. No, this is simply saying you can put Christ back on the cross, but there's no other way to come back to God. That's, that's why he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You can't stop that and try Hinduism. You can't stop Christ and move on to fill in the gap. Legalism, which is what they're trying to go back to. He's trying to warn them of that. You can't set Christ aside and go back to the temple and offer up lambs, bulls, and goats. That way is done. It's gone. There is no way to, there's no way. Those were all speaking of Christ. And so he's simply saying, you, you can't. It's impossible to bring them. There's no other way to bring them to the Father except through Christ. And if they reject him and put him back on the cross to open shame, then there is no other way. They have to come through Christ. Verse 7, For the earth which drinks in the rain and often comes upon it, and it bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. The rain falls in the just and the unjust alike. And God's looking for fruit. And know this about the fruit he's looking for. He's looking for the fruit that can be eaten. He's not looking for briars and thorns. And if that's what I'm producing, I can plan on 
being burned. It's still very real. There are saved and there are unsaved in this world. There are briars and there are fruit bearers. That's it. Those are the two types of people. Are you fruit bearing? Only you know. Well, I mean, other people might recognize it in you, but if you're not fruit bearing, maybe there's a problem, you know? But he says to these people that are on their way back to the temple, beloved. Does that help you understand where he's coming from? You're not lost. You, 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 you're not so far gone that you can't come to God. You can't come back to Christ. You can't come and embrace him completely. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. We're expecting more. We think it can happen. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. Um, For God is not unjust, excuse me, to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Look at those that are finishing well. Don't become weary in well-doing. Don't become sluggish. Don't become dull of hearing. You are ministering, and you still do minister, but what he's getting at is not to the same level. The fervor's gone. And I'm not saying you have to be excited all the time. I I heard a... uh, this guy rubs me the wrong way anyway. I'm not going to give you his name because he's got some good things out there, but he just <laughs> grates on me, just like I probably do somebody else. But anyway, I'm listening to this Australian accent evangelist. <laughs> and he just starts beating the people over the fact that they're not as excited as if they'd won the lottery. And the joy of the Lord is their strength. And to not have that joy is to sin. Well, okay, I guess I'm in sin because I'm not jumping up and down because I just heard Christ for the first... And my thought was, why does this bother me so much? What he's saying is true. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I I should be as excited about winning the lottery as I'm about winning heaven, being forever with God. Of course, those should be the same. But then I get to think about it. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just put something on me that's not true. Because once that person wins the lottery, they settle into it. And they're comfortable and they use the money and it's now spread out. They don't... They're not perpetually in the air like this. Their whole life, they come down, they cash it in, they do their thing, they're moving, they're using it and all this stuff. And it's a poor example, the lottery, but they're not in that perpetual state of euphoria. How creepy would that be? Why are you grinning? I won the lottery 12 years ago, you know? And so as Christians, the idea that we're supposed to be, every time we come in the door, jumping up and down and running around and all that is like, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I did that when I got saved. I am born again. I can't believe I have this. And that euphoria was there. And it still is, but I'm settled into it now. Now I'm growing up. I'm mature. I'm walking with the Lord. I'm working for God. I'm doing His thing. And I'm enjoying the presence of God all the time but I don't have this silly grin on my face all the time because the times are serious. I I feel like the writer here sometimes, I'm sure you do too. And so I didn't take that rebuke and I didn't accept that teaching. It's like, no, 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 that's, that's false. And you just made everybody feel worthless. 
You made everybody that heard that teaching feel worthless. You made all of God's children feel worthless. I know that's not of him. I know that's not of him. I don't want my kids to come up to me every morning and say, Dad, I'm in the Dirks household. Go back to bed, dude, you know? No, enjoy it. Settle in. Be comfortable. Understand that. But then let's be a Dirks, you know? Or you know what I mean? Be like Christ now is the idea. Walk with him. I don't see Jesus running anywhere in the Bible, you know? Or his disciples. He was teaching them to settle in, to have peace, have long-suffering, to have patience, kindness, joy for sure. Knowing that our end is with God in heaven, I am joyful over that. I'm so excited. I can't wait to get there. But I also know I have a lot of work to do down here until he takes me home. And so I say that because the writer here says, um, don't be sluggish, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We do inherit the promises, but it's a long marathon that we walk with God and we want to imitate those and we don't want to become weary in well-doing. I want to continue on with the Lord as strong as I always have. I, I want to be a tank that you just are a bulldozer that you just can't stop. It doesn't go very fast. It's not a race car. It's not fragile. But boy, you try to stop that thing, it's a struggle. Does anybody remember that guy that beefed up that, that bulldozer? And they didn't know what to do with the guy. He just went through the town just crushing buildings. And he had put armor plating all around it. And the, guys were, the cops were like, how do you stop this? And it baffled them for a while. I mean, they got him stopped finally, but it, it baffled them for a while. How do you stop this thing? I, I don't want to be that guy, but I want to be that spiritual guy. How's that? You know? How do you stop him? I mean, we throw everything in his path. He just crushes it, just keeps moving forward. No matter what obstacle I throw at him, nothing stops this train, you know? I want that. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end to all dispute. In other words, I said I'd do it, and now I'm giving you an oath that I'm going to do it, and that's to solidify it. Oh, well, okay, he said an oath. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, that he said he was going to do it, confirmed it by an oath. He swore he was going to do it that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Immutability, big word for me. Had to break that down a little bit, but that's the idea. It's just, it's unstoppable. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely going to take place. It is unstoppable. And he said these things. And so for those of us and for these folks here who have ran to the refuge of Jesus Christ, I'm supposed to believe him, that he's not going to cover me with the shadow of his wings and say, oh, I was just kidding. Anyway, back at you. Or, well, you almost had it. You were so close, but you didn't follow the right, you didn't hold your tongue right when you said that's We say that all the time. When it comes to writing down the right thing for the government, you got to hold your tongue just right. Or they're not going to, They're not going to take it, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, all that stuff. God's not like that. 
You didn't hold your tongue right. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's immutable. I said I'd protect you. You just had to believe me. And the fact that you ran underneath my wings shows that you believe me. That's it. It's done. It's immutable. Nothing can stop this salvation we have in him. And I lay hold of that hope. I love the songs we sang. So many of them are coming out in the scriptures, especially this verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. That anchor is to hold us in a position. Some of those anchors are pretty big on those ships. And they need to be proportionate to the size of the ship. My hope is in Jesus is an anchor for my soul because things are trying to pull us away, move us in different directions, get us off course, change our position. And so I've got to set my anchor in that hope, especially today. Boy, people don't like Jesus or Christians anymore in our country. I know they didn't like him anyplace else, and they've been persecuted more than they ever have been in the history of Christianity. Today, we've got more people being martyred than they did in the Roman days. Hard to believe because it's not reported and they don't know the numbers, but look it up. And now it's coming to our country. We knew it would. We knew it would. It's not there yet. It's not full bore. But you stand outside with a sign, simple sign that says, I love Jesus. See what happens. See what happens. We're getting to that place where you're going to get a rock in the side of your head. You didn't say anything about them. Didn't say anything to them. You just held a sign that says, I love Jesus. That's enough to get a rock thrown at you now. And that's mild compared to what's going on in the rest of the world, but it's coming. This anchor in Jesus needs to keep us steadfast, and we have to have that hope. It's going to hold us in our position, regardless of the wind and the waves that are trying to move us out of that position. We're going to stay steadfast. And which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now he's back to what he wanted to talk about and he'll finish up next week with this Melchizedek guy. Jesus has gone before us. He's entered in. Our high priest has gone into the heavens and didn't come back. He's good. He was accepted, which means I'm accepted, which means the sacrifice that he made on my behalf is accepted by the Father, which means I have an immutable promise from God, a hope that's anchoring me, and I'm staying there. We all need to stay there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, its ability, because it's alive and sharper than any two-edged sword, to encourage us to bring us back to where we were, to show us if we've moved in a different direction than the one you've intended for us. And we thank you for its power. Um, your word is powerful um, and it's true. And it always points us in the right direction and we're thankful for that. God, now, whether we agreed or disagreed this morning, help us to obey, to do what you've told us to do, to guard ourselves, to grow up, to begin to eat solid food, to not go back to the milk, to not wonder and worry about our salvation, but rest in the fact that we are saved because you said so, and to not have a lack of faith in what you said. You said we're saved. If we run to you for refuge, if we hide under the shadow of your wing, if we accept your provision for our salvation, we're saved, and we have. So it's done. Now, Lord, help us to abide there, to stay there to not be lured away, to anchor ourselves, tether ourselves to you, to not be moved from that grace and that mercy you've shown us. 
Lord, bless these guys as they go today, Lord. And I pray that we would walk in this now because now we need to be doers. We've heard, we've collected a Bible study this morning, we've been encouraged, but now we want to believe it so much that we, we do it now. And we thank you for this opportunity to do it, to minister the gospel to other people, to be like Christ to those around us, to just walk with you in fellowship, to worship you in spirit and truth, and to stay in that attitude of prayer continually like Paul did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.